morning, church. Go ahead and be seated and grab those Bibles. Let's open them up to Romans chapter 3. As you're finding your place there, let's go ahead and take care of a little bit of family information, if you will. Uh, This morning, I want to introduce a couple to you guys, uh, Dwight and Michelle. Uh, They sit right over here. Hey, will you guys stand just right where you are? Dwight and Michelle come today to express their desire to become members of this church. And so, if you don't know them or if you've never met them, I would encourage you to do so uh, today and in the weeks to come. You guys can go ahead and be seated. A couple of things on your calendar for you to give consideration to uh, would be on uh, Thursday, April the 22nd, our XYZ ministry has their monthly get-together. This month, you have the great privilege to be able to hear from one of my all-time favorite missionaries in the entire existence of humanity. So uh, Logan uh, will be giving an update and giving you insight into life in Mali, uh, what that looks like and what his ministry has been and what he believes that God is leading him back to do. Uh, After graduating from college, he spent two years in Mali on the mission field. He's been back now a little bit over a year, but his heart's desire is to return back to Africa just as soon as he possibly can uh, to continue to work among the Muslim people group there. And so God is preparing him. Uh, He still needs prayer partners. He still needs financial supporters. And uh, he has to raise all of his funding himself. And so he's not financially supported by any outside organization or denomination. This is all 100% funded uh, in and of himself. He's about 50% or so there in his funding. And so if you'd like to hear more about that, uh, I encourage you to be there Thursday, April the 22nd. If you're not able to be there on that day, by all means, grab him, grab me, let me know. We'd be more than glad to set up a time where he can come and talk to you one-on-one. The other thing for your calendar is on May the 2nd, uh, Sunday, May 2nd, uh, we are going to be having a lot of things happening that day in the service uh, and after the service because we're going to go old school that day and do a potluck lunch. We haven't done one in almost three years, I think. It's been a long time. And so we're going to have a potluck fellowship meal on the May 2nd, part of that meal We're also going to have a little bit of family meeting time, uh, take care of a little business among ourselves, give you an update on where we are financially over the first quarter of the year, uh, as well as introducing some new opportunities for the church. So we'll do that as we're eating. And we'll also, I'm really excited by this, we're actually having communion together that day as well. And communion is not actually going to be a part of the worship service. Communion is going to be part of our fellowship meal together. And so it's going to be cool. I want you to be there. So, and I also want you to bring some food. Oh, it's going to be really awkward. So begin thinking now. I thought about, do we assign people based upon their last names? Bring this or bring that. I'm going to say no to that approach. Because you might get assigned to bring a side dish, but you make a really good entree. So I want to encourage you to bring what you love to make. And make enough for you and 200 more people. 
That might be a little bit much. Bring enough for you and enough to share with others, and that would be fantastic. We'll give you more information about the specifics of that day as we get closer. I've talked long enough. Surely by now you know that we're continuing our study in Romans. Have your Bibles open to Romans chapter 3. Through these first two chapters, Paul has made it clearly known that all men are without excuse for rejecting God's plan of salvation. Remember that there are things about God that can be known unto everyone. Thinking back to Romans chapter 1, verse number 19, there it says, because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. So these things are evident. These things have been uh, made plain. They're clear within us, which means everybody knows about God. They know some things about God because it has been made clearly known unto them. Verse number 20 of chapter 1 says, For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. So we know enough about God, His invisible attributes, His eternal power, His divine nature. We know enough about Him to be led to Him. And God will never reject those that genuinely seek after Him. This knowledge of God is called natural revelation. It's natural revelation because it can be seen in creation and it is available unto everyone. But but there's more. In Romans chapter 2, we see that in our inner being bears, excuse me, bears the, bears the remnant of God's moral law. It's written on our hearts. I always hate drinking in front of you guys. That really sounded bad, didn't it? I'm afraid I'm like going to gulp or it's going to, never mind. So our inner being bears at least a remnant of God's moral law. Paul has gone to great lengths to show us how everyone, Jews, Gentiles alike, everyone is in need of salvation. Now one of the characteristics of Paul's writing style that is really seen in his letter to the Romans is that Paul had the tendency to ask and answer a series of questions. Knowing what he has said and knowing how it might produce certain responses from the recipients of his letter, Paul will often ask and answer questions based upon what he has just said. And so that's why Romans chapter 3 begins with a question. Look at verse number 1. There it says, Then what advantage has the Jew? What is the benefit of circumcision? This is a natural question for Paul to ask because he's just talked about how being Jewish is no guarantee of being entering into the kingdom of God. He's just talked about how the covenant sign of circumcision was not an automatic guarantee of someone's entrance into heaven. At the end of chapter 2, 
Paul clearly states that being a Jew was not a matter of heritage. It was a matter of one's relationship with God. In fact, circumcision, true circumcision, is not on the body, but it's upon the heart. And and so hearing all of this, the Jewish response might have been very naturally to fire back with, well, what's the advantage of the Jew? What's the benefit of circumcision? The first question pertains to Paul's words in chapter 2, verses 17 through 24. The second question pertains to his words in chapter 2, verses 25 through 29. So in light of his argument made in chapter 2, we might expect Paul to say, you know what, you're right. There's no benefit. You, You nailed it. Good job. No benefit at all. But that's not what he says. In fact, he says quite the opposite. Verse 1 again. What advantage has the Jew? Or what is the benefit of circumcision? Then he says, great in every respect. First of all, that they were entrusted with the oracles of God. He wasn't saying that uh, being a Jew or, or being circumcised had no benefit at all. In fact, there was great advantage of being a Jew and and being circumcised. He says uh, the advantage is great in every respect. And then he gives us one area to which it is great, and that is in being the recipients of the oracles of God, the Word of God. But later, if you look over in chapter 9, Paul lists some additional benefits of being a Jew. In chapter 9, verses 4 and 5, he says, Who are Israelites? To whom belongs the adoption as sons? Then he says, And the glory, which is God's presence among them? Well, what a benefit of, is that? Remember how the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle? That's to the benefit of the Jewish people. And it said, So, uh, adoption as sons and to the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law the temple service and the promises. Whose are the fathers? So the patriarchs. And then it says, and from whom is the Christ? According to the flesh, who is over all, God blessed forever. Amen. So, So although being a Jew did not automatically guarantee one's salvation, it most certainly brought about great privileges that other people did not possess. I mean, think about it. Not only, according to chapter 1, not only did the Jewish people have access to the natural revelation of God seen through creation, not only did they have, according to chapter 2, like all people, the, the remnants of God's moral law written upon their heart, In addition to the remnants of the moral law and uh, natural revelation, the Jewish people were given proximity and access to the Word of God. They were entrusted with His Word. God's revelation about Himself and His will had been entrusted to the Jewish people. And that gave them incredible privilege as well as immense responsibility God's revelation of his will and his word was a tremendous advantage given 
to the Jewish nation. Unfortunately, they had a tendency to focus much more attention upon their privilege than giving appropriate reflection and consideration to the responsibility that they had in respect to the privilege to which they were given. Now, these privileges, as Paul's going to make really clear here in just a moment, these privileges didn't make them any better than anyone else. In fact, next week I'll begin in verse number 9, but go ahead and look there real fast. Look at verse number 9. It says, what then? Are we better than they? Not at all. It says, not at all. For we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. So all that's to say is that no matter how pure their lineage is from Abraham, God never declared that any individual Jew can claim God's promises apart from repentance and personal faith that is demonstrated through obedience to his word. I think Isaiah chapter 55 gives perhaps one of the greatest illustrations found in the Old Testament about God's call to obedient faith. In Isaiah chapter 55, verses 6 and 7, it says, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. And let him return to the Lord and he will have compassion on him. And to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. How beautiful is that reality? So I think an even deeper truth that that Paul is trying to express is, is something that goes against, it's contrary to what many Jewish individuals believe. That deeper truth is that salvation was never offered by God on the basis of one's heritage, on the basis of religious ceremony, Salvation was never offered by God on the basis of good works. No. Salvation offered by God on any other basis other than by His grace through faith. That is the only way in which one might receive salvation. And so Paul rhetorically asks a series of questions. And look at verse number 3. Verse number 3 says, Well, what then? If some do not believe, their unbelief will not nullify the faithfulness of God, will it? So it is true that some Jews did not believe the promise of God. Did their unbelief or lack of faith in the promise of God nullify God's promises? I hope that you'll understand, but by the time we get to chapters 9 and 11, the concept of God's faithfulness in spite of Israel's unbelief will be more further, or further will be more, I can't even get my words out today, will be explained a lot better. How about that? So here, what's Paul trying to to say? Here, I think Paul is trying to showed the the difference between God and man. For instance, as human beings, we are natural covenant breakers. All of us at some point or another, perhaps even today, we tell lies. 
all of us at some point or another fail to do the things that we're supposed to do. All of us at some point or another fail to keep our word, our promises, our commitments. And so does that mean that that we can uh, project our sinfulness onto the character of God and, and say, well, because we have a tendency to break our promises, then God from time to time will also break His promises? I mean, to ask the question is the answer. And the answer is no. We don't get to do that at all. Notice the emphatic tone of Paul's writing answering his own question, he says, may it never be. In the Greek language, this phrase is the strongest negative Greek expression that he could use. This phrase carries with it the idea of impossibility. He's saying, no, never. Of course not. That would be impossible. He says, verse 4, May it never be, rather, let God be found true, though every man be found a liar. Then he says, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. The quotation that Paul uses is a quote that goes back to Psalm chapter 51. One could argue, rightfully so, that Psalm chapter 51 is perhaps the most articulate example of genuine repentance that's recorded in the Word of God. If you're not familiar with it, you need to read through its entirety. And Psalm chapter 51 comes as a result of the prophet Nathan confronting David in his sin with Bathsheba and the, the murder of her, of her husband and, and all that comes to a head. And in the revelation of his sin, David realized what all of us must realize, and that is that nothing is hidden from God. God sees everything. God sees even those things that we hide so well from other people and the things in which we tend to hide in ourselves. God sees it all. In Psalm chapter 51, beginning in verse number 1, he says, Be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the greatness of your compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgression and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you alone, I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So that you are justified when you speak and blameless when you judge. Notice how how David begs God to deal with him. He begs him to deal with him not according to justice. He asks God to deal with him based upon mercy, compassion, loving kindness. In doing so, David acknowledges that God is justified when he speaks and he's blameless when he judges. He understands that. But he approaches God and begs Him to deal with Him, not according to justice, but according to mercy, according to love, according to grace. (laughs) Is that a pattern that we can connect with? I mean, when we mess up, right? 
Our desire is that God would be loving, kind, gracious towards us, that He would forgive us and restore us in our relationship with Him. But if someone offends us, someone crosses us, someone hurts our child or our grandchild, what are we praying for? Mostly, get them, God. Give them the justice that they deserve. Don't you understand? We all deserve condemnation, hell, the wrath of God. There's not anybody here, myself, front of the line, that deserves anything but that. But by His grace, God offers salvation to those who believe. The point that David is making in Psalm chapter 51 is that he's acknowledging the fact that God has every right to condemn him. In Romans 3, the point that Paul is trying to make is that God is always righteous, both when He speaks and when He judges. So so Paul continues his his argument with even more questions. Look at verse number 5. He says, but if our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, what shall we say? The God who inflicts wrath is not unrighteous, is He? I'm speaking in human terms. Do you understand what he's asking? I mean, he's asking, basically he's what he's saying, hey look, if my sin, if my junk in life is an opportunity for the glory of God to be displayed, then how can I be judged because of my sin? After all, had it not been for my sin, God's glory wouldn't be on display. That's the, 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 the twisted justification of sin that, that often occurs. But, but such an argument is contradictory. If sin and disobedience gives God the opportunity to display and demonstrate His righteousness, then why then am I called a sinner? Why would he refer to me that way? After all, my sin's a good thing. Had it not been for my sin, then then God wouldn't have an opportunity to show how just or how great or how gracious he is. That that thinking is just so faulty. But, But such arguments and twisted reasoning is found perhaps among every single generation. It often gets displayed like this today. A loving God would never condemn people to hell. That's contrary to His nature of love. So in the end, no matter what, love wins. What this argument fails to see is that genuine love is just. God's love is perfect. It is absolutely perfect unbiased his love is impartial the love of god is completely and perfectly just and god's justice is a demonstration of his perfect love think about the cross the cross was the place where god carried out his perfect justice upon his son But the cross is also the place where God demonstrates His perfect love for humanity. So the cross is the perfect demonstration of both the the love and the justice of God. 
And so what shall we say to the idea that the Jews' unrighteousness served to draw attention to God's righteousness? Could they conclude that, that God's wrath on the Jew is unjust and unfair? Notice what Paul's immediate reaction is. He, he, he adds this phrase, I am speaking in human terms. He, he's saying, in other words, this is an argument that's based upon the human logic of the natural mind. In effect, what he's saying is, hey, don't think I believe such foolishness. I'm just presenting an argument that is often made by other people. And, and then thankfully, he goes on to provide all the clarity that we need. He goes on to answer his own question. Verse number six. Again, may it never be. No! No way! It's impossible. For otherwise, how will God judge the world? Obviously, God does not endorse sin. God does not condone sin in order to glorify Himself. All of this is directly connected to the false accusations that were being launched against Paul himself. Paul had critics from everywhere. And these critics were accusing him of teaching some very corrupt ideas. Uh, the critics were saying that he was teaching that the more wicked a person was, the more glory that God could receive. They accused him of teaching the more faithless a person was, the more faithful that God appears. The more a person lies, the more opportunity it has for the truth of God to be displayed. These are the, the charges and the accusation that Paul takes the time to briefly speak against. Look at these next two verses. Verse number 7. But if through my lie the truth of God abounded to His glory, why am I still being judged as a sinner? This was not some hypothetical misrepresentation that Paul is dealing with here. It gets clear in the next verse. And he says in verse 8, And why not say, as we are slanderously reported, and some claim that we say, let us do evil that good may come. Then he says their condemnation is just. Paul's enemies claim that his gospel of salvation by grace alone through faith alone not only did it undermine god's law but but his critics argued that it gave believers a license to sin to continue in sin free from the concept or the idea of uh, of the penalty of god now in romans chapter 5 Paul is going to deal with this issue in greater detail. Go ahead and turn with me. Romans 5. You're already there, practically. After saying in verse number 20, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Paul quickly counters the false conclusion that he knew many people would make. I said 5. It's actually beginning of verse number 6. In verse number 6, he begins with the question, what shall we say then? And here he goes again. Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? See the phrase? No! <laughs> may it never be. 
Absolutely not. How shall we say, oh, how shall we who died to sin still live in it with all the forcefulness that he can muster? Paul denounces the charge that he condones sin at any price with the same forceful rejection uh, of the concept of or any attempt that seeks to try to justify or minimize sin. Paul forcefully rejects such claims. Paul's final response at the end, that very last phrase, is short but quite effective. Although he's not guilty of teaching any of those false concepts, What he's saying is, for those that do teach these things, their condemnation is just. So through these eight verses in chapter 3, by asking and answering several questions, Paul continues to clarify the universal need of salvation. Question again, what advantage is it to be a Jew? Every advantage, especially uh, being the ones that uh, possessed the Word of God. They have proximity and access to His Word. Think about that privilege. And, and think about us today. Guess what? We have proximity and access to the Holy Word of God. From Genesis all the way to Revelation, we have com- proximity and access to the complete Word of God. What advantage is that to us? Every advantage. That's why he says in Psalm 119, verse number 11, I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. We have the word of God to guide us, to direct us, to instruct us on everything that we need to know in order to live righteously before the world and for the glory of God. What a great privilege we have. Also, a great responsibility, too. And how often it is that we tend to neglect or minimize the great privilege of being in possession of the Word of God. Why is it that we have access to it readily at our fingertips, on our phones, on our devices, even in print? We have access to it everywhere, but we spend so little time reading, studying, and applying it to our lives. He asked the question, will unbelief cancel God's faithfulness? Absolutely not. Unbelief actually establishes God's faithfulness. Scripture tells us, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse number 13, it tells us that if we are faithless, He is faithful because He cannot deny Himself. God will always be true to His Word, to His character, to His nature, and to His promises. Always. So if our sin demonstrates His righteousness, is it right for Him to condemn us for sin? Absolutely. God's judgment is a perfect demonstration of His love. One final verse, Isaiah chapter 5. Verse number 16 says, But the Lord of hosts will be exalted in judgment, and the Holy God will show Himself holy 
in righteousness. That's Isaiah chapter 5, verse number 16. All this to say is that everyone, everyone is in desperate spiritual need of the grace of God. In fact, next week, we will unpack verses 9 through 20. 9 through 20. And we'll see it even more as we see the great depravity among man. And so we'll get through 9, 9 through 20, and then Lord willing, we'll begin after that, verses 21 through 31. We'll see a justification by faith. What a great promise and awareness. So, so here's the thought, right? We have access and proximity to the Word of God. And we, we often neglect it, minimize it, don't spend enough time with it. But even greater or in addition to this blessing is we have access and proximity not just to the Word of God, but to God the Father Himself the beautiful realities that happened at the death of our Lord upon that cross was at his death there was a temple veil a temple veil ripped from top to bottom that, that, that veil in the tabernacle separated the holy of holies from everything else and here's the thing only one time a year could one individual enter into the presence of God that was it it was restricted once a year only by one person. But at the death of our Lord, that temple was ripped, signifying that we have access to God. We no longer have to go through someone else on one day a year in that one individual. Now as His children, we can access the Father any place, anywhere. On Wednesday nights, we've been going through a series on the attributes of God. And for the past Three studies that we've done, we've talked about how God is everywhere. Not only is He everywhere, God possesses all knowledge. So God is ever-present everywhere. God knows absolutely everything. And this last week, we talked about how God is all-powerful. Then we put all three of those together. Man, do you understand what that means for us? One, we can't hide from the presence of God. He knows what it is that we're doing, and He knows what it is that we need. And we should not presume to receive from God what God has ordained to give us through prayer. James writes and says, that's why you lack, that's why you have need, that's why you don't get, because you didn't ask. We didn't present that request to God. Listen, when we pray, it's not that we're bringing attention to God over a need or a circumstance in our life. Like, he's too busy dealing with all this other stuff that we throw up a prayer and say, hey God, don't forget me, don't forget this need. No, he already knows it. But how awesome is it that our all-knowing, ever-present Father that has all the power and might asks and invites and desires for us to approach Him with our need, with our request. I think it's beautiful. But prayer seems to be so lacking among God's children and within a lot of churches. Truthfully, a strong prayer ministry is lacking within this church. 
And that's something that we need to take an honest look at. What a great privilege that we have. We end every service typically the same way. We worship through singing is done. We worship through giving. And we worship through receiving his word. Now's the time for us to continue our worship through an extended time of prayer, reflection, responding to all of that. So as we move into this time today, I want to remind you that God is here. Listen, last week was a beautiful worship service from beginning all the way through the end. But don't make the mistake of just thinking, oh, wow, that was something significant. We really brought in the presence of the Holy Spirit that day. I'm not trying to be arrogant or boastful. I'll speak to myself. Where I go, the Holy Spirit goes. So the Holy Spirit dwells within his children. So it's not about ushering in the Holy Spirit. What we saw is a response of God's children to the worship and wanting to give praise and adoration to our Heavenly Father. And that's a beautiful thing. And now, as God's children, we get to approach the King of Kings with anything that we have. Our desires, our burdens, our frustrations, our fears. And in this moment, we get to confess our sins. We get to make commitments unto Him. We get to intercede on behalf of other people. This is a wonderful time for us to continue to worship. Let's not miss it. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for who you are. Thank you for your great love for us. With the beautiful promise of, of, of access and proximity to your word and to your presence, Father, may we not minimize that with who we are and how we live our lives. In this moment, Father, may your spirit guide and convict us in, in making decisions that honor and glorify you. Whatever needs to happen right now in order for us to leave in a right relationship with you, I pray that you will make it happen. May we be faithful and obedient. May you be pleased by what you see among us right now. Heads bowed, eyes closed. We'll take a few moments. Let's pray. Pray before the omniscient, omnipresent, omnipotent Father of fathers. He wants to hear from you. You have a need? Have a request? A decision? Staff and I, we're up here at the front. We're more than willing to pray with you.